0: Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? If you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we'll be today. I encourage you please open a Bible. Uh, you need to have the Bible open. Um, you need to make sure what I'm saying out of my mouth is coming from the Word of God. Um, you don't need the wisdom of man, you need the Word of God. You need to make sure those two things are aligned together as I preach the Word. Um, conflict of... Um, power is what we're going to kind of be looking at this morning in our text and conflicts are often, uh, complicated. I think you would agree with that issues typically, um, issues typically run much deeper than what's presented to us on the surface in terms of a conflict, family conflicts, uh, which manifest themselves over all sorts of disagreements often, um, stem from problems years in the making. this can play out in major conflicts as well. Like uh, On the surface, the war in Ukraine maybe could seem to just be a battle over land, just be over border territory. But we know that um, there's a much larger issue, much deeper issues going on there. There's a competing agenda for that part of the world, and uh, one nation's belief that the taking over of another people and another land would fulfill that agenda, which they think is right. Uh, but even maybe in, I say, my home, Wisdom requires me asking deeper questions when I hear conflicts arising. Could be that the conflict is just over, whose turn it is to do the dishes. But there could be something more going on. Wisdom tells us to ask those deeper questions. In Acts chapter 4, we encounter a a conflict this morning. Um, And it's one that's going to continue. We touched on it a little bit last week. We alluded to it. It's going to really begin this morning and continue to grow for the next couple chapters and really play out in the rest of the book of Acts. I and mean, just, just as the religious uh, leaders oppose Jesus, uh, they're going to oppose the apostles. And they're going to oppose the message of Jesus. So a conflict of leadership, we might say, begins in our text this morning between the, the leaders of the Jewish religion, the temple leaders and the larger group of leaders, and the apostles, the leaders of this new people, the, the church as we're seeing. But like most conflicts, the issue this morning is... They run much deeper than what's just on the surface. This is not merely a leadership conflict. This is a conflict of the kingdom. And the dividing line of really what separates God's redemptive purposes in His people. And from this conflict we learn that salvation and the identification with God's people, or our identification with God's people comes exclusively through faith in the name of Jesus. So, both salvation and our part, becoming part of, participating, identifying with the people of God, comes exclusively, solely, through faith, in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus. This conflict's going to make that clear this morning. I'm going to read. Uh, we're going to be dealing with verses 1 to 22 this morning of Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to read it this morning in its entirety. Uh, we're going to begin here in verse 1 this morning. Please turn your eyes there. Because in the, as, they, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about five thousand. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and, and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. God, guard our time, guard my words in my heart, Uh, bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word this morning to the exaltation of your son, that he might be Glorified, that we might trust Him more. That maybe some here today who do not know You would confess today that there is salvation in no one besides Jesus. And those of us who know You would confess again our necessary reliance upon You every day. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our text this morning comes directly out of, it flows directly from last week's text. Uh, the opening of verse one there that says, and as they were speaking, l- makes this clear. This is the same scene. Sometimes the chapter divisions can confuse us, but we need to not be confused by that. As Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray, uh, about to enter that gate called the beautiful gate we saw last week, it says they encountered this man who had been lame all of his life, or for at least 40 years, we hear we hear at the end of our text this morning. And he was daily there begging uh for 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 to make a living or really to to make some money to survive, and upon asking Peter and John for money, Peter tells him silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. He takes him by the hand and lifts him and heals him. Miraculously, his legs begin to his lame legs begin leaping, and as you would imagine, a crowd it says is filled with wonders, filled with astonishment, and begins to stir and come around. And this obviously piques the interest of religious leaders so Peter he obviously seizes this opportunity to preach and he explains last week that that faith and the power of Jesus name is what made this man well so it wasn't because of our power our piety it was because of Jesus and then he turns to the crowd telling them that they too can receive uh, this spiritual restoration which was really what the lame man's healing was about we saw that last week that'll be absolutely clear this week That they too can receive this spiritual restoration by way of repentance and faith in the name of Jesus. They too can receive forgiveness. They can receive renewal. They too can receive the promise of the final restoration that the prophets talked about by faith in the name of Jesus. And all this caused a stir and brought about the attention of the temple leadership. So it was during this time the apostles are now confronted by the religious leaders regarding really the issue of power. This morning, my first point will deal with that. My first heading will be of that. There's a conflict of power here that we have to deal with in the first seven verses. Luke's language is intentionally comprehensive throughout this whole chapter. The conflict concerns not some small rogue faction of the leadership. The temple leadership is unified in their annoyance and disgust of what's taking place. It says there, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people... The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, disgusted, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the priest, the, high, the highest really office of the temple, the captain or the, uh, of the temple, the muscle of the temple, and the Sadducees, they've all, they're all united together to confront the, compos- the apostles here. Now the Sadducees are especially important for a few reasons. First off, they they just deny the resurrection, which explains their annoyance of Peter's message regarding Jesus. But I think also very important in this text, and as we move forward, is they were also a ruling class of wealthy aristocrats who had buddied up politically with the Romans. So any form of excitement, any form of agitation amongst the people, really threatened their privileged position in society, which afforded them all kinds of privileges, no doubt. But it's not just the Sadducees who were upset. The temple leadership as a whole was annoyed. Again, the irony is striking. A man, has just, a, a man who has been lame for 40 years, who is sitting at the gate called Beautiful of the very temple of God, has been healed. And these dudes are mad about it. And Luke's repeated phrase explains why. It says, as they were speaking to the people, verse 1. And then in verse 2, as they were, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. Later on this becomes even clearer as they attempt to order the disciples not to speak to Jesus or anyone that it may not spread no further among the people, verse 17. There's a conflict of power that's in full swing this morning and it centers on the people. A phrase which shows up seven times even in our 22 verses this morning. And people here is clearly in reference to Israel. Right, Peter's language absolutely from chapter two on has made this, has proven this point. He has and he will again this morning address the people as all the house of Israel. Look down at verse 8 where he references the leadership and says, rulers of the people and elders. And then again in verse 10, he says, Let it be known to you, the leaders, and to all the people of Israel. So the people here is not just a reference to just merely a crowd of people that just happened to gather. But specifically, a crowd here represents Israel. That's Peter's aim in his teaching. That's their aim of trying to stop what's being spread amongst the people of Israel. Now, why why is that important? Because Luke is recording the forming of a new people in the narrative here. A new Israel, might we say, is being formed. Through the apostles' words, and the power of God's resurrected and exalted Son, whom the temple leadership outright rejects. This power struggle is impossible really to miss in the text. And yet notice where the true conflict lies. It says, They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So this power struggle is not just between the apostles and the temple leadership. It's between the power of God, the resurrection power of Jesus versus the power of man represented in the temple religion here. Remember Peter's message, right? In the name of Jesus is found God's power to save and restore. He said the, the, the lame man who everyone knew, he has gone from a beggar to a worshiper right in before the eyes of everyone here. He, didn't just, he wasn't just healed. He was healed and he entered the temple, it said, worshiping God. He has experienced the resurrection power of Jesus. That's what Peter said. They want to know what what happened, what was going on. That's what he said. He's going to say it again. The temple leadership hates this. They despise it. And they demonstrate the impotence of their religious power in the face of Jesus. They are as lame spiritually as the legs of the man previously in the last chapter. And their actions prove it. Prove it this morning. Verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So using their power, they arrested the apostles. They said, we'll stop this, this madness, is what they conclude. But while they arrest the apostles, they cannot arrest the gospel, for, it is, for its power is of a different source and a different kind. It's not of this world. And Luke throws verse 4 in there just so that we're clear on that. They arrest the apostles. They got them bound up, but what verse 4? But many of those who, are, who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So this arrest did nothing. The message is spreading. The kingdom of God is not affected in the least by the kingdom of man. And you might say, well, it actually probably did do something. It spread it more. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. Uh, the, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God are founded on two entirely different power sources. One by the power and wisdom of man and the other by the power and wisdom of God. Namely, the resurrection power of God's Son, Jesus. The exalted one who was exalted through his suffering. But notice the contrast presented though between the people and the temple leadership. Luke's making a point here. The people, Israel themselves, here proved to be fertile soil for the message of Jesus. Over 5,000 have responded by repentance and faith in Jesus. 5,000 men at least. There's more than that. But in stark contrast, the leadership of Israel, the ones who know the law and the prophets, prove to be hard, dead soil. They see this new power of restoration and life in Jesus as a threat to their power. Just like they saw Jesus's, Jesus in His day. So instead of repentance and faith, they are committed to stopping this nonsense. As they see it. And they depict, I think, really the power, as I said, the power and wisdom of man. Wealth, status, political power. They valued it. It was clear. They had it. That was clear. They possessed it over the people. And because of this, they were annoyed and threatened by the power of Jesus. The power of the kingdom right in front of them. The religious leaders, I think, prove, the li- uh, prove a living illustration of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, where he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So you see, the conflict of power it does really reveal a parable of the kingdom which Jesus himself spoke about. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Meaning, it's not easily recognizable by everybody. Captivated by the things of this world, with its value system and its power structure, the power and value of the kingdom is easily missed. We'll walk right by it. These so-called gatekeepers of God's kingdom, the temple leadership, prove the words of Jesus' parable here. For Jesus goes on in that parable and describes the man who upon finding this treasure buried in the ground did what? He says he went and sold everything that he had to buy that very field. God's kingdom purposes in his son have been clearly revealed to the leadership here. Through his life, through his death, Whom they, in fact, were guilty of bringing about. And his ongoing resurrection power evident through the healing of this man. They've seen it. But they will not sell. They will not give up what they have, what they own, what they possess to receive it. Their power, their status, their wealth, and lot in the kingdom of man is more valuable than that of the kingdom of God. Now, the religious leaders are a very easy target for us, right? I and mean, that's easy for us this morning. We could bash them pretty easily. And they seem ridiculous in so many ways. We can do that in the Gospels as well. It's like, man. But we probably shouldn't maybe slide by them too quickly this morning. We all live in the kingdom of man. With its value system. Which, we, which is the water that we swim in every day of our lives. We would be unwise to not ask the question, in what ways am I relying on the power and wisdom of man instead of the power and wisdom of God? In what ways do we seek upward mobility all the time? And Jesus, as we know, sought to lay down His very life. In what ways do we seek to make ourselves known all the times? For people to see us and make us popular? And how often are we thinking about the way we're viewed by other people? Jesus was come, one who came, who was despised, rejected by men. Nothing about his status, his figure, brought any eyes upon him that thought of anything worthy. The King of Glory laid his very life down upon a cross and died But then, the Bible says, by so doing, he was exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. So there is a question here for every one of us in this room. There's a salvation question, but then there's just an ongoing discipleship question for all of us. If you're not a Christian this morning, are you walking by the kingdom of God because you don't see the value of it? Are you trapped? Are you blinded by the value system of this world in such a way that you don't see the value in Jesus? But then are we as Christians? How are we as Christians in our walk of discipleship lured away, pulled away to trust in so many other things in the Lord Jesus Christ and His power and His wisdom? The kingdom of God is going forth through the building of God's people, new people here, through faith in the resurrection and exalted Jesus who Himself is the fulfillment of Israel. That's what's happening here in the text. And as... We are used to, by now, when a conflict comes, our brother Peter, he responds. That's what we see in verse 8. So we see a, a conflict of uh, power, but now we see, I think, in 8 to 12, a response of exclusivity. Now, because it was late in the evening when the temple leadership arrested the apostles, the text says they held them overnight right, until they could bring the, them before the authorities in the morning, which is the scene that we really have in 8 to 12. It says, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. Again, Luke's language is comprehensive here. Luke leaves no room to question the leadership's position towards Jesus. All the top dogs are present. And their presence depicts an eerily similar scene to just what happened a few months prior when Jesus stood before this same group of men and was questioned regarding by what authority he was teaching. And he taught. And it was at that time that our brother Peter stood outside who denied the Lord Jesus. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power? By what authority? and By what name? did, Did you do this? Speaking of the crippled man. They asked, By what power? What authority? Was this man healed? The apostles really now stand in the place of Jesus, literally. And just, you know, try and imagine the scene for what they must have felt, especially Peter. He had to be thinking like, what's next for us? What's, what's going to happen to us? Is crucifixion next for us? But this time, instead of denying Jesus, Peter boldly bears witness to Jesus. It says where he was filled with fear before, he's now filled with the Spirit. Verse 8 explains, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, same guys, rulers of the people, Israel and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here's his third time doing it, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter, again, this is the same Peter who's already been filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 at Pentecost, is now filled with the Spirit again, right? So remember we talked about there that one filling in the New Testament does not explain away the second filling or more fillings that happen throughout, right? If you want to go back and listen to that message, we talked about some of the teaching that we have in the church that you must be filled with the Spirit, speak in tongues, a a second kind of baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about why that's wrong, we don't see that in the Scriptures. We're sort going of to see multiple fillings of the Spirit. And what we see every time someone's filled with the Spirit is what? They're filled to speak. Exactly what we see here. It leads Peter to speak, to proclaim the message of Jesus. What's going on here is exactly what Jesus predicted would go on here. Luke chapter 21, verse 15, we read, Jesus promised the disciples, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. He says, settle settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you answer for I will give you a mouth of wisdom none of which your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to say literally that something happened that really happened here today is evident. We, We have nothing to say about it. Jesus' words are absolutely fulfilled here. And I love how Peter... This is comforting to me. Peter begins with a note of like spirit-filled sarcasm in the text. I like that. Sarcasm is not a a bad thing when it's used well. Peter literally says, like, guys, if we're in trouble today, are we in trouble today for doing a good deed? We helped this crippled man. Is Is that what you're mad about? Are you mad about that? Is that why you arrested us? Oh, if so, okay. If that's the case, let me explain. But notice the aim of his explanation is not limited to the leadership. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Again, this is the third time Peter has used this formula. You killed him, God raised him. Peter is saying, this guy has been made well by the Jesus you killed. In other words, Peter is saying the risen Christ is alive and active today by the Spirit of God through the people of God. That's what he's saying. Now, the temple conflict, which I alluded to last week. Remember we said last week, as we began in chapter 3, Luke used the word temple like five times in the first couple of verses. He was really set on us recognizing that the context is the temple. And now the confrontation is with the temple leadership. And what we see here really comes to a climax in verse 11 as Peter speaks with clarity. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter interprets clearly for them a very well-known passage of scripture from Psalm 18, 118, which I used as our call to worship. And from Mark chapter 12, which Jesus spoke to the religious authorities, as you heard earlier, with the parable. He interprets very clearly for them. That uh, these leaders that before his death, uh, Peter's going to make clear. He says, Jesus is the stone that the builders, who's the builders? You guys, the leaders. That you rejected. And he says, and by you rejecting him, by condemning him to death, He's become the cornerstone. Now, what does cornerstone speak to? Cornerstone, cornerstone speaks to construction. And it speaks to a new construction. Right? For the cornerstone was the stone that formed the base of the corner of a building. It joined the two walls together and really got everything symmetrical and lined up. You could The building, the structure would find its, its, its shape and its stability on the cornerstone. So he's saying, though the builders, the temple leadership, rejected Jesus, by rejecting him, he has become the cornerstone of a new construction. Something new is being built. A new temple, might we say. The church of Jesus Christ. We're going to see this play out through the book of Acts. The the temple, as it had existed in Jewish life, is no longer that place anymore. He's connecting it with this scene with the lame man. It's lame. It's impotent in that way. God is doing something new. The temple served its purpose in redemptive history, but something greater than the temple is here, as Jesus said. Him. The one whom the temple pointed to has come. It wasn't as though Jesus, it wasn't as though in redemptive history God had a plan A and it all went wrong, and He said, Man, we've got to scrap that plan and have a plan B. No. The temple was not plan A and Jesus was plan B. The temple, Jesus was plan A and the temple helped bring about that and point us to that. Edmund Clowney describes here, he says, It is not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means. Rather, Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. The coming of the true supersedes the figurative. The view of the temple made with hands is destroyed for the symbolism is now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. This is Jesus standing before the woman at the well when discussing worship. The argument is where do we worship? Where's the proper temple? Jews and Samaritans disagreed about that. On this mountain, Mount Gerizim or here, Mount Moriah. Where where are we going? Where's the temple? Where's the right place? And Jesus says, there's a day coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Jesus is saying there, and Peter is reiterating here, that following His death and resurrection, worship for the people of God will no longer be bound with a place and a location on the map, the temple will be bound to a person, Jesus himself, and the new structure, the church, which is being built upon him. I hope your mind are going to all kind of New Testament passages, and I'll read a few for you that reiterates this. Peter in first Peter speaking to the church explicitly referencing Psalm 118 says in first Peter chapter one uh, in first Peter chapter two, verse four, as you come to him, Jesus, who is he? A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Psalm 118. You yourselves, he says to the church, he's saying to us in this room, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 2. And speaking of the church, he says he calls us fellow citizens of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In Him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Peter is saying something greater than the temple is here. Jesus. And by His death, resurrection, the pouring out of His Spirit, He has ushered in the new age, as we talked about in chapter 2. And in this new age, a new structure is being built a new people is being formed. Not just Jews, Jew, Gentile. From all nations is the point of Acts. The the gospel is going to go forth. And Jesus is the key figure. The message of the gospel is the cornerstone. His person, His work is the keystone of God's great plan of restoration for His people. So in verse 12, the verse that we probably know very well, I think Peter is issuing both a warning And then offering hope. And he's building upon the analogy he's building here of a new structure and a cornerstone. He's saying access into this new structure, this new people, is available. It's available to you, Jewish leaders. It's available to everyone. But solely through the name of Jesus. That's it. He says, And there is salvation in no other name. No one else. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We spoke last week about name being representative of identity. Right? It's not just a title. Like, there's multiple different titles. Someone else shares your title, but you're your unique person. The name here represents the person and work of Jesus, the identity of Jesus tied to his work. And he's saying there's no salvation found in any other name than the person and work of Jesus through the gospel. And he's saying here that Peter says the physical healing and restoration of this lame man provides proof regarding the exclusivity of Jesus in terms of salvation. Maybe last week you weren't convinced that the lame man, the point of the lame man being healed was not just about physical healing. Well, look what Peter does. Peter has no problem shifting from the lame man walking to salvation in only the name of Jesus. The point is spiritual restoration is salvation. He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, though this is changing, and for the most part, Christianity is still tolerated in our culture, up until statements like this, the salvation is found exclusively in Jesus and him alone. It's these type of statements that get Christians labeled as bigots and narrow-minded and hateful people. So I want to deal with that a little bit this morning, because the reality is those statements or those accusations against us assume that the message of Jesus is similar to that of other religions. But that couldn't be anything further from the truth of Christianity. Christianity presents Jesus as the particular solution for a unique problem of humanity. The message of the gospel is how sinners, guilty and separated from God in their sin, can be reconciled, can be restored, can be made right, can be stand before a holy and righteous God, the creator of the universe. Sin and the wrath of God do our sin is the problem in Christianity. So in that sense, Christianity is the antithesis of all other religions, which in some form or fashion deal with man's attempt to reconnect or reconcile to God. Christianity tells us how man's attempts are utterly hopeless. We are sinners, bound and enslaved by our sin. And brothers and sisters, sin is not just actions we commit. Sin is a disposition we possess. We sin because we are sinners. We are powerless to change our disposition. We're powerless to change our nature, our sinful nature. But God has done something that we could never do. He has come to us, taking what we deserved on the cross and offering us resurrection power to be forgiven, to be made new, to be given a new disposition a new nature in order to be able to truly love and obey God from the heart. You see, the exclusive claims of Jesus, this exclusive claim of Jesus is contingent upon the unique problem of humanity being our sin and separation from God. Because of this, claiming that there is salvation in no other name is not unloving. It's actually the ultimate expression of love. For humanity. Saying there are many ways to God is in fact hateful and unloving because it's allowing someone to believe something that will result in their eternal separation from God. If you had a cure for a a rare disease that many people had, but you ceased to share that cure with people over fear that they might not like the treatment that's going to be prescribed with it, would that be loving? That'd be a form of hate, on the worst sense. So upholding the exclusivity of Christ is an act of love for humanity, not hate. And rejecting the exclusivity of Christ is actually dishonoring Christ. It's in fact saying that God is unwise. And actually that God is cruel. For if there was another way of salvation, then it means God slayed His Son upon the cross when He didn't have to. He could have done it another way. It's to say the death and sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross was not really necessary. So God was either unwise, He didn't know there was a better way, or He was cruel in just doing it. It's a dishonoring of God the Father and it's a dishonoring definitely of the Son. He spilled His blood for a reason that was not necessary. The reality is the exclusivity of Christ, as tough as it may be for our culture to swallow, it is a first-order issue for the church of Jesus Christ. Not believing in the exclusivity of Christ is to confess a misunderstanding of the gospel. It is to confess a misunderstanding of the seriousness of our sin and the consequences that they bring about. Brother presence Jesus didn't die. As an example to follow, he died as a substitute in our place. He didn't die to show us a better way. He died to bear the wrath of God due us for our sin. The exclusivity of Christ testifies to the unfathomable love and grace of a holy and righteous God towards sinners that he did not have to express to us. So while we should always speak with humility in terms of this issue, we should confidently and clearly hold to it and speak of it. It gets at the heart of the gospel. And the exclusivity of Christ is actually what fuels the mission of the church. I said that at the beginning of our sermon series, we're going to be thinking about what is the mission of the church as we move along. And Without the exclu- exclusivity of Christ, we have no fuel for our mission like we go and tell people about Jesus because they need a Savior in which there is only Jesus who saves. Let me just say this, maybe. This is a clear reminder of the exclusivity of Jesus that sincerity of faith is not what saves us. Sincerity of faith is not what saves people. Many, in fact, most religious people around the world are extremely sincere in their religion and zealous in their religion. It's not the sincerity of their faith that saves them. It's the object of their faith that will save them. What are we trusting in this morning? What are you trusting in this morning? Listen, there is a vile lie in San Diego. It's all over. But I'll just speak here. That you can be a Christian and you can decide what Christianity looks like for you. And then your zeal, your sincerity into what you've decreated to be Christianity saves you. That is a lie from the from the pit of hell. Salvation is found in Jesus. What he did, who he is, what he did, what he accomplished. The most loving thing we can do is graciously, humbly tell people that message. That is why, that is our mission as a church, to make it clear. So the question for all of us is, is, what are we trusting in this morning? Are you trusting in the sincerity of your belief? Like you wake up every day and you think about your relationship with Jesus and think about how much am I trying and, and working out and living sincerely before the Lord? That's what's going to save me. Or is it in Jesus, the true object of our faith? On that last day when you stand before the Lord, The sincerity of your faith will not even be a question on the table. The object of your faith will be what's important. Have you trusted in Christ, what he's done, who he is? Are you trusting the life, death, resurrection, the power of Jesus for salvation? So Peter responds with an exclusive claim and one we must hold tight to. But thirdly, there's an empowering presence of Christ here in the text. It's kind of the way I I see it. So it says here the the temple leadership is amazed at the boldness maybe your translation has confidence of Peter and John or the courage you might have. Uh, this word boldness or courage it's a word that Luke's going to use often. He's going to we're going to pick it up again in a very important passage when it talks about uh, they're going to be released again and they're going to pray and they're going to talk they're going to see their boldness again. It's a word Luke uses often and it's regularly employed in connection with the empowering of the spirit. So the Spirit empowers, boldness follows. And this boldness is not, it's not describing some sort of like temperament. Um, it speaks, I think, to the depth, the clarity, and maybe we might even say the spirit-filled persuasive nature of the proclamation of Jesus. It says now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, what did they see? They saw, G- they saw the apostle opening up the Scriptures, going to Psalm 118, a Scripture that they knew, and clearly, persuasively, boldly speaking for Jesus. It says, when they saw this and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now, uneducated and common is not in reference to being illiterate. It's really in reference to, like, formal training, especially in terms of Judaism, right? They, these are religious leaders. So these guys, the apostles, they lacked any formal formal credentials of teaching the Bible as they saw was necessary. Um, Something else, so that was lacking. They knew that. They're common folk. They don't have the training. They don't have the seminary degrees, if you might say. But something was evident, though. It says next, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a great description, right? Wouldn't that be a great testimony for your life? Maybe your headstone. Here lies Jimmy Steele. He had been with Jesus. And the disciples had. They'd spent three years with him. More importantly, back in chapter 1, they spent 40 days with the resurrected Christ learning about the kingdom of God. So their boldness, I think their clarity of, the clarity of their life, their confidence in the Word of God, testified that they had been with Jesus. It's a reminder to us, Christianity is not about mastering a set of concepts. Christianity is about, not about learning a new way to make decisions in life. Christianity is about an encounter with a divine person which leads to a reorientation of life. The leadership recognized that what Jesus was about, they were about. The message that he spoke, they're speaking. They had been with him. And it had changed them. This ain't the same Peter, by the way, right? They can know that. And that was undeniable. I don't want to... I think you can make too much of this statement. We need to make sure we keep it in context to what's happening here. So I don't want to make too much of it, but I also don't think we should... Miss the application that it lays on the table as well. Have you been with Jesus? I mean, it's a good question. Is that evident by the way you live your life? I know we're busy people, all of us. We have busy lives, some more busier than others. But this is not an option in the Christian life. I hear it said sometimes. We talk to people and I just don't have time. I don't have time to spend 30 minutes in the Word and prayer. You must spend time with Jesus to be a Christian. You must sit at the feet of your Savior to live the Christian life. To be a believer and not be spending regular Ongoing time with Jesus in prayer, in the Word, and in fellowship with other believers is an extremely dangerous place to find yourself. Because you are attempting to live the Christian life void of the power and presence of Christ. And you can't do it. You will be confused. You will be deceived. And the next thing you will start doing quickly is you'll start justifying sin in your life. And you will find yourself with the Christian facade on. You can look the part but you'll be wallowing in your sin and enslaved to it. Church, you, we have to fight to be with Jesus and I don't know of any other word I can just say to throw it out there. You have to fight to be with Jesus. You have to look at your calendar. You have to say no to things to be with Jesus. If you're not with Jesus on a regular, I'm not, I'm not saying, like, I'm not laying out here there's an hour a day. We're not a regular, ongoing time with Jesus. If you're not doing that, you need to stop doing other things in your life, as important as they might be, because there is nothing more important than prioritizing your life with Jesus. We just finished the book of Hebrews. You will drift. We do not live in a world, your feet are not sitting on a, in, in a world that's not moving somewhere. There's no neutral ground in this world. The ground that you stand on in this world is slowly Moving, we say fastly, maybe it looks like it's slowly moving to hell. Moving away from the presence of Christ. And if you are standing still thinking that you're not actively pursuing Christ and you're not moving in that direction, you're blind. You are going somewhere and you're not going towards Christ and it's a dangerous place. We have to fight to be with Jesus the life we are called to, a life of purity, a life of love, a life of obedience is impossible apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in us. Yes, when we became a Christian, we are given the Holy Spirit, but Jesus tells us we are to abide in Him, remain in Him. The source of our life comes through the, the faucet, the spigot. It's Jesus. It's His work of the Holy Spirit. It's not us, but it's our responsibility to stay connected to that thing. That it can flow through us. We must remain. We must abide in Christ. And verse 14 says here, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They, they Literally, the words of Jesus, they were shut up. But we, when they, demanded, they, they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with, 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 with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? Now, I'm telling you, you guys got to pay attention. Luke is a master and he's writing. The irony drips across this narrative, Right? The educated ones, the ones who are not common, everyday folk, they're huddled up trying to figure out the answers. The uneducated, common folks, they got the truth and they're just talking it. They won't be refuted. They can't even refute the truth that's coming out of their mouth. And the hardness of these guys' hearts is also on full display here. (coughs) Powers corrupted them. They present really the antithesis of true power found in the humility and servanthood of Jesus. Jesus. They know something truly miraculous has taken place. They're huddled up talking about it. They just won't concede it in any way. The sign is undeniable, but the interpretation as coming through the resurrection power of Jesus is unacceptable to them. It conflicted with both their teaching and their authority. So that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, there's our language again, Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That should have fixed it. Their primary concern is stop this thing from spreading. We can't afford to lose any more influence or power here. So they warned them don't speak in the name of Jesus. Speak, but don't speak in his name. So their power has so blinded them that they are now trying to stop the speaking forth of the very one whom they are supposed to be. They say they're anticipating the Messiah. But Peter and John again res, uh, respond with gospel boldness, and we might see some respectful, right disobedience. We'll talk about this later because we have to deal with it. it. Says, but Peter and John answered them, "Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge." For if we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The contrast goes deeper here, right? The temple leadership is denying and trying to stop what they have seen and heard. The apostles can't stop speaking about what they've seen and heard. Verse 21 and 22, though, I think gets at the heart of what's going on here. It says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what that happened. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So this man, this wasn't some dude who passed through the city. 40 years, everyone knew who this guy was. So it was evident. So what we see here is that fear is driving both parties of leadership in the text. One is led by the fear of God. Literally, you decide whether we should speak if it's right, if we should listen to you or listen to God, you decide. But we can't speak about what we've seen and heard. We, cannot, we can do nothing but not speak about what we've seen and heard. But the other group is frozen by the fear of man. They want to do something. They want to take action. They want to squash this thing. But they end up just like they were in Mark chapter 12 as in our corporate reading. It says that they were silenced. They couldn't do anything for fear of the people. It's undeniable God's power is present in the healing of this man. But now they're supposed to be, they're so worried about their power over the people, now they're really enslaved to the people. They're having to do the will of the people. They're scared to death. Trying to please the thoughts of people here. It's... It's a reminder, though, that the the empowering presence of Christ does produce proper fear in our lives. But the power of man, represented really by the temple leadership, is bound by the fear of man. Faithful obedience and worship of God requires us rightly fearing the Lord. And I think this does point us right back to the necessity of spending time with Jesus. Fear is a driving force in all of our lives. We either live by the voice and the opinion of man or by the voice and fear of the Lord. And the reality is when you're not spending time listening to the voice of God, you will be led, you will be consumed with the thoughts of man and the voice of man. And you end up in the end living your life with the thoughts and opinions of people more than the will of the Lord over your life. Even in the name of religion, that's what they're doing here. They are led by the thoughts of man. And that that will hinder each one of us from participating in really God's activity for our life through the people of God. So I end this morning with really a trust question, a belief question. And that was really set before the people here. Who are they going to trust in? Are they going to trust in themselves? Are they going to trust in the power of Christ? What they seen was so evident to happen, and they chose to trust in themselves, to trust in their power, to trust in whatever else that meant. They weren't willing to give up in order to gain Christ. So this morning for you, who, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your ways, your works, for your place before God, you think? The sincerity of your faith? Or are you trusting in Christ and His work for your life? The discipleship questions the same one for us believers. Who are we trusting in? We're going to sing in just a minute. Jesus, only Jesus, it's Him we're trusting in. Because... What we see here is that salvation and our participation into the people of God, our identification with the people of God, to be the people of God, comes about solely to the name of Jesus alone. Faith in His name. Lord, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You again for Your grace in our lives and revealing Yourself to us through Your Word where we encounter Your Son. Lord, we have a, all have a conflict of power in our hearts. And God, I pray even this morning You would let us look to the power of the kingdom and test our hearts to where we're leaning on the power of man. Probably most important, our own power. And God, I do pray that we would see, embrace, love the exclusivity of Christ. Lord, the fact that, not that there could be a myriad of ways to get to God, which we know can't be the case in terms of what the Bible teaches, but God, thank you that there is a way, that you've made a way through your Son. That out of your grace and mercy, you've brought your Son, you've given us your Son. And he has accomplished everything we need for salvation. Let us rest and trust in him this morning. And let us be led by the fear of God, not the fear of man. As we're going to see the apostles in just a moment, and next week they're going to be imprisoned, and then they're going to pray, Sovereign Lord, and going to lay their lives at your feet and say, Use us. God, let us be the same. Let us trust you as a church. Let us do that corporately, but let us do that individually. Spur us on to be this great people that you've made us to be in Christ. In his name we pray.